This is episode 277 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by our patrons. Listeners just like you can support the show, contribute directly to programming, and get bonus history tidbits from my research each week, all when you sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Jared Kirby. I'm the co-author of Staging Shakespeare's Violence. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Well, the reason that they were put into balls was because it was the easiest way to transport it because they would be dried and they dry as hard as a cannonball. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Shakespeare's play, Henry IV, Part Two, Falstaff has the line, quote, his wits as thick as Tewkesbury mustard, end quote, that comes from Act Two, Scene Four. Falstaff is describing his friend, Ned Poins, but it presents the question of what was Tewkesbury mustard? It turns out this particular mustard was developed in the small town of England called Tewkesbury, and it was not only popular in Shakespeare's lifetime, but during the 17th century, it was considered a staple condiment in kitchens of this time period. Amazingly, the mustard has not only survived the centuries, but is still being made the way it was in the past, right in Tewkesbury, at the Tewkesbury Mustard Company. We're delighted to have Robin Ritchie here with us today. He's the founder and mustard master emeritus at the Tewkesbury Mustard Company, and he's here to share the history of this mustard, how it's made, and how you can enjoy some for yourself. Robin Ritchie describes himself as a jack-of-all-trades, starting out as a forester in Scotland, then becoming qualified as a landscape architect in Cheltenham, where he met his wife, Julie, before starting his own landscape construction company. This financed the start of Who House Nursery, and his wife runs that now. Robin Ritchie started informally making Tewkesbury mustard in the year 2000, supplying to the town only. On retirement, he first collaborated, then handed over the reins of the business, now called the Tewkesbury Mustard Company, and is under their direction, now sells worldwide. Find out more about Robin and the Tewkesbury Mustard Company in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Robin. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Okay. Hello, Cassidy. What are the ingredients that make a Tewkesbury mustard? Uh, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> um, wouldn't we all like to know? Uh, there was nothing written down about Tewkesbury mustard until Will Shakespeare mentions it in his play in 1597. He was the first to mention it on paper. Yeah, that's the first actual historical mention of it. There's no recipes that tell us what they would have used. That's surprising. Well... The best source we have is from a chap called James Bennett in 1830, who wrote in his book, The History of Chicksbury, a description of how it was made at that time. 
I'm pretty sure that that was not the commercial version because we've got evidence of muster preparation rooms in two of the 15th century buildings in Barton Street in Chooksbury. Shall I quote you a bit from the book? I would love to hear some from the book. Tell me what he has to say. The good housewives here, however, uniformly pounded the mustard seed in an iron mortar with a large cannonball or other hard substance of a similar shape and size. And after the flour had been carefully sifted from the bran, it was mixed in a cold fusion of horseradish and well beaten or stirred up for a base of at least one hour. It was considered that the horseradish imparted great additional pungency to the mustard and that the continued beating gave it that consistency and strength which was deemed essential to its good preservation. Well, I don't fancy stirring it for an hour. I love that a cannonball is essential kitchenware. Well, funnily enough, cannonballs, the last battle of the Wars of the Roses happened just outside Tewkesbury. So there's no end of cannonballs. Well, that's a very efficient use of that, of having them laying about. I wouldn't have thought to do that. Yeah, we've got one. Do you really? Yeah. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. The Tewkesbury Mustard Company website says that for Shakespeare's lifetime, this mustard was only ever sold in balls as opposed to jars, which was a change that started in, the, I believe, the 19th century. Robin, how is mustard able to be sold in balls? This was really surprising to me because I, I wouldn't think that mustard would be able to form into a ball. But is that what Falstaff is talking about when he says that the mustard is thick? Well, the reason that they were put into balls was because it was the easiest way to transport it because they would be dried and they dry as hard as a cannonball. The roads were pretty awful around here because we're on heavy clay being in the Vale of the River Severn. Pack horses with panniers would probably have been the preferred option for transporting goods like this. Glass was too fragile and that's why the balls were dried. Would they make the mustard into a paste and then dry the paste that would need to then be reconstituted? Or were the ingredients dried and you mixed it at home with water to form the mustard afterwards? Well, that's exactly what we do. We we make the balls, we dry them, but not as hard as they did in medieval times. It's clear that the audience in Shakespeare's theatres would have been very familiar with Dukesbury mustard. Otherwise, the jokes don't work. But we've got the expression today, you know, as thick as two short planks, and we say touch wood, if we touch our heads at the same time. And it's possible, then, is a comment on the hardness of the mustard ball and points his head. But then again, Tukfi mustard has got to be reconstituted to a thick paste, and maybe that's its comparison, who knows? Yeah, we have to speculate there, but I think it's interesting that the ball of mustard was as hard as a cannonball. The fact that you could use that as a as a weapon, you're gonna you could defend yourself with your mustard ball on no. your on your travels. Yeah, it's funny that funny you should say that because on occasion I I draw cartoons, and for Sam I made a a cartoon of I was telling you about the battle, the last battle of Tewkesbury in the Wars of the Roses. I made a cartoon of two soldiers with a cannon firing mustard balls. (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, I I can send you a copy of that if you like. I would love to see that. We can put that in the show notes for this episode. Let me just say, horseradish is a very common weed around Tewkesbury 
But as to the mustard, therein lies a mystery. First, we don't know how much mustard they needed because we didn't know what the market was like. I found out that the yield of, of mustard on good soil is around about 1,000 to 2,000 pounds per acre these days. But mustard likes to grow on light soil, which we haven't got. So the question we ask ourselves now is, where did they get the seed from? They weren't planting it? Well, we've got no evidence of them growing it. And it's unlikely that the soil was good enough to grow it. So I suspect that they were importing it. So the question then is, where from? And there's good river access from Gloucester docks. So it probably came up the river from Gloucester. But then before that, it could even have come from France because the Romans set up Dijon as their centre of mustard production 2,000 years ago. So the French have got a longer tradition of producing mustard than we have. It would make sense for them to borrow it from them. And French was in vogue for England during Shakespeare's lifetime, for sure. So they probably would have seen that as something to keep up with, I imagine. Either that or import the mustard from France, which uh, we didn't get on very well with France because they took back some of the lands that our William the Conqueror owned. And it went on for 100 years or something. Yeah, we had a hundred years war with the French, not just because of mustard, I'm sure, but um, <laughs> I, would, yes. I wouldn't think so. Not, not at least the the sole purpose. As I assume, using them for cannonballs was not the traditional method of using them. What are some of the ways that the mustard ball would be used in Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, I started making mustard balls around the turn of the century, and when Tewkesbury Abbey organised what was what they called Brother Ben's Day. And that was about 40 children being invited to spend a day playing at being a monk. And I was asked to be the monastery gardener, a senior monk. I was required to teach a small class of young children how to make something from the garden. And what better, I thought, than Tewkesbury mustard. And I, I did a few trials. But then I realised I'd have the kiddies on fire. So I had to do something bit more innocuous. But the idea was born. And the following year, for the Tewkesbury Food Festival, I made my first mustard balls and raised money to support Brother Ben's Day. Incidentally, a little old lady approached my store, and as quick as a flash, she reached out and nicked a mustard ball from my pyramid. She disappeared into the crowd. And I think she mistook it for a Ferrero Rocher chocolate. And I later found it outside the tent, minus one bite. Hmm, serves a right. Right, Ferrero Rocher chocolates were not made back in the 16th century, though, so that, we wouldn't have that mistake. But the great thing about a mustard ball is its portability. And I can easily imagine our Will racing off to the Tabard Inn, carrying his mustard ball in his purse. I'm not sure pockets have been invented then, have they? You might bring it, bring it out and share it with friends. In fact, I've done this. I've taken it to a restaurant, reconstituted it, as he might have done, because you can reconstitute it with anything you're drinking, like a, especially a sweet drink. Their beer was sweet. It was called small beer. Cider, excellent. Wine, especially white wine, that's excellent. These drinks are all things that you would put the mustard in? You, yeah. Well, you, you just take, cut off a little piece of your mustard ball, 
on the side of your plate or platter, whatever they're using, add just a spoonful of your liquid, whatever your choice is, and mix it up. Oh, and then... It's as and simple then, as that, and I've done that in a restaurant. That I mean, that sounds like it would taste really good, because then you would put the paste on, you know, a piece of bread or whatever you're eating. Yeah, you're, if you're having steak or something like that. Yeah. It also makes a brilliant salad dressing with a bit of extra liquid. I can imagine it would. That's a great suggestion. Well, now I'm going to have to I'm going to have to try that absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what was the reputation of Tewksbury mustard in Shakespeare's lifetime? Was this like an essential condiment that would have been widely available on tables in his lifetime or Well, I don't know about I, I don't know how they were sold. This is the thing. Whether you know, I've just given the picture of uh, Will Shakespeare having one in his pouch, in his purse, going off. But they may have been available in the in the inns as well. I don't know. But interestingly, I've seen the kitchen accounts dating from the 17th century of Arley Hall in Cheshire, and they ordered 50 pound sacks of the stuff of of mustard balls. No, of mustard. Beg your pardon. Okay. That indicates how much importance they attached to it, how much they used. So it's up with salt, near enough, as an essential ingredient. So you've mentioned some of the records that we have about where mustard was used, and certainly this 50-pound order of it. But are there any 16th to 17th century cooks or authors that reference mustard or even Tewksbury mustard specifically? Yeah, there's a lot of references to Tewksbury mustard and its quality, the fact that it was famous in 1597 speaks that it, or indicates that it was famous and popular way before that. Now, we can go back to Henry VIII, which is about, what, 50 years, and uh, there's a, a story actually told, by my, told me by my doctor. Uh, so it's got to be true, isn't it? <laughs> Certainly worth hearing. What's the story? But his father did read a lot of research in uh, in this field, and he discovered that Henry VIII visited Tewkesbury in 1535, along with his new wife, Anne Boleyn, and they were feasted at Tewkesbury Abbey. And on the table were mustard balls wrapped in gold leaf. So it's quite possible that... Henry VIII brought back, or when he went back to London, insisted on chickpea mustard being brought in. You can imagine that 60 years, that's not very long for a reputation suddenly to, and the popularity in London of chickpea mustard went skyrocketing. Amazing. So there you and, go. If if it being yeah. something Shakespeare mentioned in his plays wasn't enough reason to try Tewksbury mustard, you now know that it is a royal preferred mustard. So it's it's definitely worth a try. Well, this is what my doctor says, and um, <laughs> but I, I pressed him for the source, and he couldn't find it. Well, I, I, I enjoy a good anecdotal story as as anyone. So I think. It's it's fun to think about all the same. Now, if we yeah. did want to study the real history of Tewksbury mustard and stories that we can rely on, what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? There's a, a huge amount online, especially my favorite is the Gutenberg Project. They publish all sorts of 
old books that are out of copyright. And you can get John Evelyn's Salet, which is available on the Gutenberg Project, along with Culpepper's Herbal. You can find out an awful lot about how they used mustard. There's on researchgate.net, there's a, an item called Great Balls of Fire, a brief history of Tewkesbury mustard. And it's a research paper by Carl MacDonald Freeman of Manchester University. Unfortunately, I think large chunks were lifted straight from the Tewkesbury mustard website. So, uh, but sadly, he uses an illustration of a jar of mustard. Oh, so he, so he didn't read all of the Tewkesbury Mustard website if he did lift some of the information. No, I think he asked Sam, actually. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not original uh, work from our point of view. But there's some others, uh, other interest. It's worth a look because there's, there is other stuff. So I'm not worried about that. Well, I think these are excellent resources, and we'll link directly to them in the show notes for today's episode. So hang on to the end for the URL for where to find those. Now, Robin, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Right. Gormenghast by Mervyn Peake. It's actually a trilogy, but it's published in one volume, so I hope it's not cheating. I think I think it counts. I've had people select collected works of particular authors, so I think we can allow you a trilogy for sure. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a thick book, <laughs> so it should take a bit of reading. It's quite a dark story and quite weird, but it's also ridiculous, and I love it. <laughs> well, I think picking something that you could spend your time enjoying and be in- entertained by is a good selection for your desert island. Yes. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm excited. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades and uh, master of none, ex- except mustard, I suppose. And at the moment, I'm building a barn. I think I got carried away and, and it's now bigger than most people's houses. <laughs> And what I've got to do now is live long enough to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> and pick what you're going to house in it once it's complete. It's an option. If I have an argument with my wife, I might be thrown out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you should build it comfortably just in case. <laughs> no, it's, it's a workshop. We had a little fire here. and uh, So it's a replacement garage. It's a workshop. And upstairs, although, you know, as long as you don't tell any planners and they're not listening to this broadcast, I'm hoping that I can get a potter in so that he can, or she can have it as a studio. That sounds fascinating. I think yeah, that we, sounds like a really fun project. Yeah, we've got, well, we got Sam's partner started with his wood business, which is going like, a, you know, really successfully. He used our facilities. You know, we don't charge for this sort of thing because I'm so old. You know, what am I going to spend the money on except for a better coffin? <laughs> no yeah it's, well, it's lovely to have that sort of thing what a perspective robin i think i have enjoyed speaking with you about the history of tewkesbury mustard and learning all about exactly how it was made because i didn't know at all how they would turn it into a ball and and how it would then go from being a ball to something that they could use as a condiment so i really appreciate you sharing not only the history but just the practical side of how this is supposed to work this has been a fun conversation and i thank you for being here uh, i was pleased to do it thank you very much 
If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a rating and a comment on the platform you're listening from today. If you'd like to see visuals that go along with Tewksbury Mustard History that you're learning about in our conversation today, be sure to check out the show notes. We have images of the mustard itself, the cannonball used to make the mustard, as well as that cartoon Robin drew of military men using the mustard balls for cannon fire. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 277. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 277. If you love that Shakespeare life and listen here every week and want to have a direct hand in contributing and supporting the show, then consider becoming a patron. Patrons power the show. They make it possible for us to reach out to the guests you hear about each week and to explore and research the history we bring to you in every episode. To say thank you for supporting our show, patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms, along with sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions to be asked during an interview and special history tidbits along the way from my research as I'm putting the show together. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.